Chapter 6 of 25 Sermons on the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Durham. 25 Sermons on the Holy Land by Thomas DeWitt Talmage. Chapter 6 The Glory of Solomon's Reign. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Matthew 23, 37. This exclamation burst from Christ's lips as he came in sight of this great city. And although things have marvelously changed, who can visit Jerusalem today without having its mighty past roll over him? And ordinary utterance must give place for the exclamatory as we cry, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Disappointed with the Holy Land, many have been, and I have heard good friends say that their ardor about sacred places had been so dampened that they were sorry they ever visited Jerusalem. But with me, the city and its surroundings are a rapture, a solemnity, an overwhelming emotion. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! The procession of kings, conquerors, poets, and immortal men and women pass before me as I stand here. Among the throng are Solomon, David, and Christ. Yes, through these streets and amid these surroundings rode Solomon, that wonder of splendor and wretchedness. It seemed as if the world exhausted itself on that man. It wove its brightest flowers into his garland. It set its richest gems in his coronet. It pressed the rarest wine to his lips. It robed him in the purest purple and embroidery. It cheered him with the sweetest music in that land of harps. It greeted him with the gladdest laughter that ever leaped from mirth's lips. It sprinkled his cheek with spray from the brightest fountains. Royalty had no dominion. Wealth, no luxury. Gold, no glitter. Flowers, no sweetness, song, no melody, light, no radiance, upholstery, no gorgeousness, waters, no gleam, birds, no plumage, prancing coursers, no metal, architecture, no grandeur, but it was all his. Across the thick grass of the lawn, fragrant with tufts of campfire from Ingati, fell the long shadows of trees brought from distant forests. Fish pools, fed by artificial channels that brought the streams from hills far away, were perpetually ruffled with fins and golden scales that shot from water cave to water cave, with endless dive and swirl, attracting the gaze of foreign potentates. Birds that had been brought from foreign aviaries glanced and fluttered among the foliage and called to their mates far beyond the sea. From the royal stables there came up the neighing of twelve thousand horses standing in blankets of Tyrian purple, chewing their bits over troughs of gold, waiting for the king's order to be brought out in front of the palace, when the official dignitaries would leap into the saddle for some grand parade, or harnessed to some of the fourteen hundred chariots of the king, 
the fiery chargers with flaunting mane and throbbing nostril would make the earth jar with the tramp of hoofs and the thunder of wheels while within and without the palace you could not think of a single luxury that could be added or of a single splendor that could be kindled down on the banks of the sea the dry docks of Ezion Gabar rang with the hammers of the shipwrights who were constructing larger vessels for still wider commerce. For all lands and climes were to be robed to make up Solomon's glory. No rest till his keels shall cut every sea, his axemen you every forest, his archers strike every rare wing, his fishermen whip every stream his merchants trade in every bazaar, his name be honored in every tribe, and royalty shall have no dominion. Wealth, no luxury, gold, no glitter, song, no melody, light, no radiance, waters, no gleam, birds, no plumage, prancing coursers, no metal, upholstery, no gorgeousness, architecture, no grandeur, but it was all his. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Well, you say, if there is any man happy, he ought to be. But I hear him coming out through the palace and see his robes actually encrusted with jewels as he stands in the front and looks out upon the vast domain. What does he say? King Solomon, great is your dominion, great is your honor, great is your joy? No. While standing here amidst all the splendor, the tears start, and his heart breaks, and he exclaims, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What? Solomon, not happy yet? No not happy the honors and the emoluments of this world bring so many cares with them that they bring also torture and disquietude pharaoh sits on one of the highest earthly eminences yet he is miserable because there are some people in his realm that do not want any longer to make bricks the head of edward i aches under his crown because the people will not pay the taxes, and Llewellyn, Prince of Wales, will not do him homage, and Wallace would be a hero. Frederick William III of Prussia is miserable, because France wants to take the Prussian provinces. The world is not large enough for Louis XIV and William III. The ghastliest suffering and the most shriveling fear, the most rending jealousies, the most gigantic disquietude, have walked amidst Obiescus courtiers and been clothed in royal apparel and sat on the judgment seats of power. Honor and truth and justice cannot go so high up in authority as to be beyond the range of human assault. The pure and the good in all ages have been execrated by the mob who cry out, Not this man! But Barabbas, now Barabbas, was a robber. By honesty, by Christian principle, I would have you seek 
for the favor and the confidence of your fellow men. But do not look upon some high position as though that there were always sunshine. The mountains of earthly honor are like the mountains of Switzerland, covered with perpetual ice and snow. Having obtained the confidence and love of your associates, be content with such things as you have. You brought nothing into this world, and it is very certain you can carry nothing out. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. There is an honor that is worth possessing, but it is an honor that comes from God. This day rise up and take it. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Who aspires not for that royalty? Come now and be kings and priests unto God and the Lamb forever. If wealth and wisdom could have satisfied a man, Solomon would have been satisfied. To say that Solomon was a millionaire gives but a very imperfect idea of the property he inherited from David his father. He had at his command gold to the value of 680 million pounds, and he had silver to the value of 1,029,377,000 pounds sterling. The Queen of Sheba made him a nice little present of 720,000 pounds, and Hiram made him a present of the same amount. If he had lost the value of a whole realm out of his pocket, it would have hardly been worth his while to stoop down and pick it up. He wrote 1,005 songs. He wrote 3,000 proverbs. He wrote about almost everything. The Bible says distinctly he wrote about plants from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that groweth out of the wall, and about birds and beasts and fishes. No doubt he put off his royal robes and put on his hunter's trappings, and he went out with arrows to bring down the rarest specimens of birds. And then, with his fishing apparatus, he went down to the stream to bring up the denizens of the deep, and plunged into the forest, and found the rarest specimens of flowers. And then he came back to his study, and he wrote books about zoology, the science of animals, about ictology, the science of fishes, about ornithology, the science of birds, about botany, the science of plants. Yet, notwithstanding all his wisdom and wealth, behold his wretchedness, and let him pass on. Did any other city ever behold so wonderful of a man? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. David's Greatest Grief But here passes through these streets, as in the imagination I see him, quite as wonderful and a far better man. David, the conqueror, the king, the poet. Can it be that I am in the very city where he lived and reigned? David, great for power and great for grief. He was wrapped up in his boy Absalom. He was a splendid boy, judged by all the rules of worldly criticism, 
from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot there was not a single blemish the bible says that he had such a luxuriant lock of hair that once a year when it was shorn what was cut off weighed over three pounds but notwithstanding all his brilliancy of appearance he was a bad boy and he broke his father's heart he was plotting to get the throne of israel he had marshaled an army to overthrow his father's government the day of battle had come the conflict was begun david the father he sat between the gates of the palace waiting for the tidings of the conflict oh how rapidly his heart beat with emotion two great questions were to be decided the safety of his boy and the continuance of the throne of israel after a while a servant standing on the top of a house looks off and he sees someone running he is coming with great speed and the man on the top of the house announces the coming of the messenger and the father watches and waits and as soon as the messenger from the field of battle comes within hailing distance the father cries out is it a question in regard to the establishment of his throne does he say have the armies of israel been victorious am i to continue in my imperial authority have i overthrown my enemies oh no there is one question that springs from his heart to his lips and springs from the lip into the ear of the besweated and bedusted messenger flying from the battlefield the question is the young man absalom safe when it was told to david the king that though his armies had been victorious his son had been slain the father turned his back upon the congratulations of the nation and went up the stairs of the palace his heart breaking as he went wringing his hands sometimes and then again pressing them against his temples as though he would press them in crying oh absalom absalom my son my son would god i had died for thee o absalom my son my son stupendous grief of david resounding through all seceding ages this was the city that heard the woe oh jerusalem jerusalem i am also thrilled and overpowered with the remembrance that yonder where now stands a mohammedan mosque stood the temple the very one that christ visited solomon's temple had stood there but nebuchadnezzar thundered it down zerubbabel's temple had stood there but that had been prostrated then herod built a temple because he was fond of great architecture and he wanted the preceding temples to seem insignificant put eight or ten modern cathedrals together and they would not equal that structure it covered nineteen acres there were marble pillars supporting roofs of cedar and silver tables on which stood golden lamps and there were carvings exquisite and inscriptions resplendent glittering balustrades and ornamented gateways the building of this temple kept ten thousand workmen busy for forty-six years stupendous pile of pomp and magnificence but the material 
and architectural grandeur of the building were very tame compared with the spiritual meaning of its altars and holy of holies and the overwhelming significance of its ceremonies o jerusalem jerusalem christ's last visit there but standing in this old city all other facts are eclipsed when we think that near here our blessed lord was born that up and down the streets of this city he walked and that in the outskirts of it he died here was his only day of triumph and his assassination one day this old jerusalem is at the tip-top of excitement christ has been doing some remarkable works and asserting very high authority the police court has issued papers for his arrest for this thing must be stopped as the very government is imperiled news comes that last night this stranger arrived at a suburban village and that he is stopping at the house of a man whom he had resuscitated after four days sepulture well the people rush out into the streets some with the idea of helping in the arrest of this stranger when he arrives and others expecting that on the morrow he will come into town and by some supernatural force oust the municipal and royal authorities and take everything in his own hands they pour out of the city gates until the procession reaches to the village they come all around about the house where the stranger is stopping and peer into the doors and the windows that they may get a glimpse of him or hear the hum of his voice the police dare not make the arrest because he has somehow won the affections of all the people oh it is a lively night in yonder bethany the heretofore quiet village is filled with uproar and outcry and loud discussions about the strange acting countryman i do not think that there was any sleep in that house that night where the stranger was stopping although he came in weary he finds no rest though for once in his lifetime he had a pillow but the morning dawns the olive gardens wave in the light and all along yonder road reaching over the top of the olivet towards the city there is a vast swaying crowd of wandering people the excitement around the door of the cottage is wild as the stranger steps out beside an unbroken colt that had never been mounted and after his friends had strewn their garments on the beast for a saddle the savior mounts it and the populace excited and shouting and feverish push on back toward the city of jerusalem let none jeer now or scoff at this rider or the populace will trample him underfoot in an instant there is one long shout of two miles and as far as the eye can reach you see wavings of demonstrations and approval there was something in the rider's visage something in his majestic brow something in his princely behavior that steers up the enthusiasm of the people they run up against the beast and they try to pull the rider off into their arms and carry on their shoulders the illustrious stranger the populace are so excited that they hardly know what to do with themselves and some rush up to the roadside trees and they wrench off branches 
and they throw them in his way. And others doff their garments, what though they be new and costly, and spread them for a carpet for the conqueror to ride over. Hosanna! cry the people at the foot of the hill. Hosanna! cry the people all up and down the mountain. The procession has now come to the brow of yonder Olivet. Magnificent prospect, reaching out in every direction. Vineyards, olive groves, jutting rock, silvery shalom. And above all, rising on its throne of hills, this most highly honored city of all the earth, Jerusalem. Christ, there, in the midst of the procession, looks off, and he sees her fortress gates, and yonder the circling wall, and here the towers blazing in the sun, Phesalius and Marion, yonder is Hippicus, the king's castle, looking along in the range of the larger branch of that olive tree, you see the mansions of the merchant princes. Through this cleft in the limestone rock, you can see the palace of the richest trafficker in all the earth. He has made his money by selling Tyrian purple. Behold now the temple, clouds of smoke lifting from the shimmering roof, while the building rises up, beautiful, grand, majestic. The architectural skill and glory of the earth lifting themselves there in one triumphant doxology, the frozen prayer of all nations. Personality of Christ The crowd looked around to see exhilaration and transport in the face of Christ? Oh, no. No. Out from amid the gates and the domes and the palaces, there arose a vision of this city's sin and this city's doom which obliterated the landscape from horizon to horizon. And he burst into tears, crying, Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! But that was the only day of pomp that Jesus saw in and around the city. Yet he walked the streets of this city, and the loveliest and the most majestic being the world ever saw or ever will see. Publius Lentius in a letter to the Roman Senate, describes him as a man of stature, somewhat tall, his hair the color of a chestnut fully ripe, plain to the ears, whence downward it was more orient, curling and waving about the shoulders. In the midst of his forehead is a stream or partition of his hair, forehead plain and very delicate, his face without spot or wrinkle, a lovely red, his nose and mouth so formed as nothing can be represented, his beard thick in color like his hair, not very long, his eyes gray, quick, and clear. He must die. The French army in Italy found a brass plate on which was a copy of his death warrant, signed by John Zerubbabel, Raphael Roboni, Daniel Roboni, and Tape. Sometimes, men on the way to the scaffold have been rescued by the mob. No such attempt was made in this case, for the mob was against him. From nine in the morning till three in the afternoon, Jesus hung dying in the outskirts of the city. It was a scene of blood. We are so constituted 
that nothing is so exciting as blood. It is not the child's cry in the street that so arouses you as the crimson dripping from its lips. In the dark hall, seeing the finger marks of blood on the plastering makes you cry, what terrible deed has been done here? Looking upon the suspended victim of the cross, we thrill with the sight of blood, blood dripping from thorn and nail, blood rushing upon his cheek, blood saturating his garments, blood gathered in a pool beneath. It is called an honor to have in one's veins the blood of the house of Stuart or of the house of Habsburg. Is it nothing when I point to you the outpouring blood of the king of the universe? In England, the name of Henry was so great that its honors were divided among different reigns. It was Henry I, and Henry II, and Henry III, and Henry IV, and Henry V. In France, the name of Louis was so favorably regarded that it was Louis I, Louis II, Louis III, and so on and so on. But the king who walked these streets was Christ the first, Christ the last, and Christ the only. He reigned before the Tsar mounted the throne of Russia, or the throne of Austria was lifted. King, eternal, immortal. Through the indulgences of the royal family, the physical life degenerates, and some of the kings have been almost imbecile, their bodies weak, their blood thin and watery. But the crimson life that flowed upon Calvary had in it the health of the immortal God. The Death and Resurrection Tell it now to all of the earth and to all the heavens. Jesus, our King, is sick with his last sickness. Let couriers carry the swift dispatch. His pains are worse. He is breathing a last groan. Through his body quivers the last anguish. The king is dying. The king is dead. It is royal blood. It is said that some religionists make too much of the humanity of Christ. I respond that we make too little. If some Roman surgeon standing under the cross had caught one drop of the blood on his hand and analyzed it, it would have been found to have been the same plasma, the same disc, the same fibrin, the same albumin. It was unmistakably human blood. It was a man that hung there. His bones are of the same material as ours. His nerves are as sensitive as ours. If it were an angel being despoiled, I would not feel it so much, for it belongs to a different order of being. But my Savior is a man, and my whole sympathy is aroused. I can imagine how the spikes felt, how hot the temples burned, what deathly sickness seized his heart, how mountain and city and mob swam away from his dying vision. Something of the meaning of that cry for help that makes the blood of all the ages curdle with horror. My God, my God, why has you forsaken me? 
forever. With all these scenes of a Savior's suffering will this city be associated. Here, his unjust trial, and here, his death. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But finally, I am thrilled with the fact that this city is a symbol of heaven, which is only another Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And this thought has kindled the imagination of all the sacred poets. I am glad that Horatio Bonar, the Scotch hymnist, rummaged among old manuscripts of the British Museum until he found that hymn in ancient spelling, parts of which we have in mutilated form in our modern hymn books, but the quaint power of which we do not get in our modern versions. Jerusalem, my happy home, when shall I come to thee? When shall my sorrows have an end? Thy joys, when shall I see? No dampish mist is seen in thee, no cold, no darksome night. There every soul shines as the sun, there God himself gives light. The walls are made of prettiest stones, thy bulwarks diamonds square. Thy gates are of a right orient pearl, exceedingly rich and rare. Thy turrets and thy pinnacles with carbuncles do shine. Thy very streets are paved with gold, surpassing clear and fine. Thy houses are of ivory, thy windows crystal clear. Thy tiles are made of beaten gold, O oh God, that I was there. Our sweat is mixed with bitter gall, our pleasure is but pain. Our joys scarce last the looking on, our sorrows still remain. But there they live in such delight, such pleasure, and such play, as that to them a thousand years does seem as yesterday. Thy gardens and thy gallant walks continually are green. There grow such sweet and pleasant flowers as nowhere else are seen. There trees forever bear fruit and evermore do spring. There evermore the angels sit and evermore they do sing. Jerusalem, my happy home, would God I were in thee. Would God my woes were at an end. Thy joys that I might see. End of chapter 6. Recording by Ryan Durham.